This is Body Talk, where we explore your inner universe. Hi, and welcome to Body Talk. I'm your host, David Lasondak, structural integrator and fascia specialist at the Center for Integrative Medicine at UPMC. And today I'm happy to have not one, but two guests. The first is a longtime friend and friend of the show, Liz Stewart. Liz has been doing structural integration for over 30 years in blending in movement awareness, polyvagal theory, modern group psychotherapy, trauma dynamics, and she is the person who probably introduced half of the, all the structural integrators to the other half of all structural integrators. And because this is just who Liz is, she brought a friend with her today, Dr. Chap Atwell, a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at New York University's Grossman School of Medicine, who has a particular interest in group therapy and group dynamics. Liz Chap, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us, David. Thanks, David. Thanks for having us. My pleasure. So Liz, how did you and Chap first meet? Because on the surface, it doesn't seem like an obvious thing. Well, in reality, it wasn't all that obvious either. And Chap, feel free to jump in here. I, I have been teaching structural integration in some dimension since 1992. And at a certain point, I decided to step out of teaching because I discovered that I needed more skill to be the, the teacher and, and learn some group skills. Because what I was noticing was if the teacher was somebody famous, everybody would say, oh, the teacher says, the teacher says, or they would bypass the fact that the learning was important and make it more about the teacher. And I wanted to get away from that model. So Good I idea. stepped out and I started teaching on my own. I left the school I was affiliated with, the Guild for Structural Integration. And I went off to Germany to teach my own, my own stuff. And that's where this whole idea of group opened up for me. Why Germany? Well, I, got, I was invited. Okay, because that's kind of random otherwise. Yes. So I went over there and I had a very interesting experience. Basically, I was with this class. Most of the students, the majority were my age or older. They had been raised predominantly in the Eastern Bloc of Germany. Not everybody, but a good chunk of the students. And one of them made a statement to me that said, and this is a long-winded version to meet in chat, but... That's it right. The, the story. There's, that not, there's nothing long-winded in our world. Yes. Yeah, and this is a podcast. They can be <laughs> right. as long as we want them to be. Right. So I had one of the students say to me on the streets of Berlin in an, uh, what would be considered an old East neighborhood, uh, are you Jewish? Which kind of threw me off. And I said, I am. And they said, what's it like to be a Jew in Berlin? Wow. And I had no idea what to say. I had no idea I would have such a body response. And I said, Is that your first day in Berlin? It was maybe my second or third day. Okay, after but still, back. that's pretty heavy. Yeah. And I said, What's it like to have me? <laughs> and what happened in that class was we had to actually talk 
we couldn't go right into touch because it was too stimulating, not just for them, but for me as well. So I came home to Boulder. Were you teaching SI during that week? I was teaching a six day workshop. Okay. This was about 16 years ago. Okay. I came back to Boulder and I was uh, sharing this with a friend of mine who's a psychotherapist. And she said, oh, there's a fellow in town you have to meet. He works with groups. He works with this thing called transference and he offers supervision. And so that was my instigator. I, I went and met with this man here in Boulder and I've been in supervision with him every other week since then. But he introduced me to a couple of things. One was group work. One was feeling things in my thought process, in my body and using them productively and to really get involved more with learning about group. And so I went to a conference called AGPA, the American Group Psychotherapy Association Conference. And I met a lot of people there. And one of them happened to be a fellow who said, you know, if you like AGPA, there's a, another group called the Center for Group Studies. Mm -hmm. And they are based in New York City. And they have classes three times a year. And it might be interesting to look at that. So off I went to look at that website. And before I knew it, I signed up and I began what is, I, I think I might be in, up into my, somewhere between seventh and ninth year there. Uh, That's great. Learning about group in, in experiential mm -hmm. learning, reading, supervision, and that's mm -hmm. where I met CHAP. And so you did all this to just become a better teacher because teachers have to work with groups. I did this to become a better teacher and eventually to offer supervision in our field, David, mm -hmm. where supervision doesn't really exist and to work with teachers to help them understand the value of having some skills related to mm -hmm. group. Because all sorts of things happen when you're in a, in a room of people. Yeah, one-on-one -on -one is very different than the group, that's for sure. But, but before we get to chat, just wait, chat, one more minute. Uh, yes, to make sure everybody's on the same uh, page here, the same uh, eardrum, uh, define supervision in this context so everybody's well, clear. Supervision, as I look at it for the bodywork community, I, I, and then I want to mention one other thing about meeting chat is that a lot of people get mentored. I certainly was mentored by uh, somebody who happened to be a student of Dr. Rolf's, Rolf's. And mentoring to me meant I was learning how they worked. Where supervision or consultation, because we don't have the same laws that they might have in psychotherapy around supervision. I wanna help somebody be Help, help them define what it is they do in their work. So help them create their style rather than them watching me and learning my style. Right. And so in supervision, either individual or group, and I do run group supervision, my goal is to get people to talk about their work with others because talking is also integrative. Talking yes, also it is. comes through the body. And... So if we can learn to listen to each other, to share what we're doing and to 
begin to understand that who we are can go with how we touch and how we interact, that can be very productive uh, to have somebody after your training that is there for you that you can work with slowly over time. Because what happens that I've discovered is people graduate from their program. And I, and I hate to say this, but as a when I was teaching, I might say, please get in touch. But if they did, I was not really available and I uh -huh. wouldn't get back to them right away. And I thought, why not create something where a practitioner has somebody uh, devoted or dedicated or practicing supervision as their craft so that the student that's out of school, whether they're newly out or 25 years out, has a place to go to debrief, to decode, to evaluate, to talk about what happened to them in their- yeah, I, think, I think that's so needed. I, I often say school teaches you just enough to be dangerous and then you actually have to go out and learn. And, 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 and how do you contextualize that? And most of us, most of us had to do that on our own in the wilderness as yeah. it was and figure it out on our own, make a lot of mistakes along the way, hopefully good ones. Mm -hmm. So let's take this back to, you had another story about CHAP. So back to the Center for Group Studies, I met CHAP uh, in, I believe in the hallway in between uh, sessions that were happening at the Center for Group Studies. And at that center, you have experiential, uh, three-day experiential uh, weekend. And I met Chap there and we discovered that we both had an interest in, in the body and body language, in, in connective tissue, in neurology, all these different things. And in my personal background, I come from a family where we, would, we're very good at bridging into other fields. So it, it felt very uh, remarkably good to meet a physician that I could speak a language with versus being around physicians that I didn't have a common language with. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we met and then mm -hmm. I, I think about a year later, we were in San Francisco mm -hmm. at the AGPA conference again and CHAP actually uh, invited me to lunch and we had a lunch and talked about, could we figure out a way to create something with both of our interests and look at this idea of layers of fascia, group work, and how can we introduce to a larger community this idea that uh, body language and nonverbal communication has a very active place in group work regardless of the group work that one does. How does that sure. sound, Pap? I was just gonna say, I love your version of the story. It sounds so sophisticated and yeah, streamlined and brilliant. <laughs> and wow, how, 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 did, how did we come up with that? That's really... So your version is different? <laughs> well, not 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 really, but you know, I guess to be oblique, you know, we're coming from a different angle. Uh, the, the there there is, I guess this would be more parallel than oblique. It's uh, I'm moved by a lot of what you're describing, Liz, because it highlights how much we share, 
and in terms of we coming from very different histories, how we ended up meeting at this point, I guess that would make it oblique if the lines eventually meet. Um, the, uh, the, the sort of East Germany experience for me would be as a kid uh, when I was 13, 14, I was on the fringe of a lot of trouble in my life, certainly acne ridden and panic, just tons of panic and didn't, um, did not know how to find my way in the world. And I was just truly blessed that uh, uh, my family was working with a group therapist and psychiatrist who was a pioneer in the group therapy world named Irvin Kraft. So that was my craft. He uh, started at the time, what was a, an, an experimental adolescent group therapy. And I was fortunate enough to be invited to join that. And, yeah, you know, how old, were you? I, how old were you when you joined that? I think I was, I think it was like January or February of eighth grade. So around okay. 14 and, uh, and Kraft, started the group for the first few sessions and then uh his daughter and one of the associates in his practice ran it for a couple of you know for for years and i was in that group for eighth grade through ninth and tenth grade and i i still can't tell you it's like you know that you look in the pdr physician's desk reference for mechanism of action of any psychiatric medication and it says unknown like, I still can't tell you the mechanism of action of what happened in that group. But what I can tell you is that apart from what I remember about the people or the details of what we talked about or this or that, I came into that group of freaking mess. Mm -hmm. And when I left at the end of 10th grade, I was the president of my class. I had a girlfriend. I had had my first spiritual epiphany in life and had uh, secured a place to go to Barcelona, Spain for a year of high school as a junior in high school and uh, was like living life on a different plane. Wow. That is probably that, like group therapy. It works. It, 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 that's it. That's yeah. exactly it. It works. Mechanism of action unknown. I mean, we could speculate, but the, sure. the truth is that like something happened in there. Mm -hmm. Like something got reorganized in my fascia and in the fascia of the group space that like so it's interesting changed me to hear forever. you say that I was going to ask about acceptance, if you thought acceptance was a part of that. Uh, not that's really. certainly not consciously. That would take a lot later. That, okay. that would have to become, I'd have to get a lot later in yeah. my, the, you know, frontal lobe evolution to use words like acceptance. Oh, but, but. Uh, mm -hmm. No, you're right. Because what did happen is that those people loved me for who I was. Yeah. That's what I got in acceptance of me. I was thinking you were thinking of like my acceptance of my condition that came. No, I'm talking about their acceptance accepted. of me. Yeah. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. That was for sure. Yeah. Oh, Cause I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think in that's huge. And I think Liz, you see this too, when you're working one-on-one -on -one with a client or a patient, accepting that person who's come to you for help as they are is yeah. where it starts. Oh, that was really where well, it started and so welcome. And you know, David, since uh, we can acknowledge that you're way more of an expert on fascia than uh, most 
anybody out there that that I know at this oh, point. Oh, stop it, stop. Um, <laughs> okay, I'll, well, I'll take well, that. But you are, you know, you're a published okay. author on it. One of the things that I find when you said acceptance was that part of, to me, working with this idea of fascia and layers, which I think would be fun for us to describe to you. Well, that's coming up next. Is that when we access this idea of either through touch or in group work of the outer layer. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe you could help us understand a little more. It's a little more watery. There's a little more movement in the outside than in, in yeah. necessarily deeper layers. And I think that acceptance comes from what is, what is on the surface has value. What shows okay. up on the surface? So we will be exploring how the surface has value uh, after the break when Body Talk returns. Welcome back to Body Talk with our guest today, Chap Atwell and Liz Stewart. Now, in that last bit, you, you threw a lot of things out there, and uh, I'm not quite sure which direction to go in first. But Chap, you talked about becoming aware that your fascia changed back when you were in that group dynamics setting, but I'm presuming at the time you knew nothing about fascia and connective tissue. Is that that is very true. Okay. And then we talked about the idea that the group, any group, kind of has its own body language, its own layers and maybe metaphorically and maybe not so metaphorically, they kind of relate to the layers in the fascia. And both of these things we have got to unpack. So um, why, don't, why don't we start with the personal first and then go to the group? So, so Chap, when you say your, your fascia changed back when you were 14, 15 in this group, how did you contextualize that later in life? Well, uh, I guess the, the main thing would be that, that there, there was just an undeniable dent in my awareness that like could never be the same. Like something changed in me that allowed my belief of myself, the capacity to trust myself, mm -hmm. to value my intuition and to take a risk, like a, to take, to take a, you know, I guess it, in retrospect, who knows what about risk, but like if it, if it were not, if you knew the outcome of it, the, the activity, it wouldn't be a risk. It's right. like, I didn't know going to Barcelona, Spain as a junior in high school was going to be like one of the more defining events of my entire life. But I knew enough to, to, to keep mm -hmm. in, in the evolution of that process. So did you feel uh, these changes on a physical level while you were going through? Yeah, I did. Mm -hmm. Like when I won the election to be president of my class, it was like something changed in my body. And that would not have happened without my group. Mm -hmm. There's That's... no question. Like, how did I get to be president of my class? I was in group therapy. How did I, <laughs> how did I get to be president of the entire student body? Mm -hmm running an election away from Barcelona, you know, in Barcelona, Spain, away from junior year and still come back and be president of the high school. It was because I was in group therapy. Yeah, like see, that's just, very different, very different from my experience. I became class president by uh, 
working a swear word into my speech and I went to a Catholic school. So I swore in front of nuns. So that, 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 um, that appealed to a certain group of voters that probably wouldn't have had without it. Uh, I like your method better. Well, <laughs> there's always more to these stories, but <laughs> so let's, it reminds this is raising me, her hand. Yeah. yeah, it reminds me that if, if we think back in just in history, even before there was uh, all these writing, before there were all these writings on group work, mm -hmm. if you think back to ritual, to, uh, to gatherings of people, to music events, when, when people come together, there is something that happens for many of us where we start to attune to each other or we get something from the other and all these parts that have been out on their own come into a room and by either something external or internal, we, we begin to relate differently and it can be very uh, provocative. It can also be incredibly healing. I mean, just the basic of a drum circle. Yeah, yeah. So how did you first start? relating that to uh, the fascia in connective tissue body and layers well that that's a great that's a great question and i think it gets right to the point that one of the ways that i knew that my my fascia had changed forever in that early group was then to detect the absence of it so i'll try to make that clear that for example when i was a resident at Bellevue Hospital and NYU Medical Center. We were in a, I was in a group for years called a process group, which was basically a group that, you know, where you, you have a leader and you get to talk about things that don't fit into the curriculum and they don't fit into the classroom. Like it's a, it's a process where you get to talk with your colleagues in a very open way. And it was, by far and away, other than my own individual psychoanalysis at the time, it was by far the most defining experience of my training because I was with my peer group. I mean, we had conversations there that we will never forget and are bonded for life because of that experience. And as I was going through my classical psychoanalytic training after process group, I kept in a number of experiences in training and psychiatry, I kept asking myself, how come we don't do more in group? What's with all the medication? What's with all the one-on-one? -on -one? What's with all of this? Where's the collective? You know, the, 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 the group, the experiences I had to run a group were so few and far between in psychiatry that I, I kept asking, I kept responding to the absence of that fascial structure about where is group, because I wasn't finding it. And so for years, I lived my life wondering where is group? And I even consciously asked myself, how come people don't do psychoanalysis in group? Like, and I was like, you know, like I was pretty far along in the game here. Like I was mm -hmm. like a, you know, card-carrying psychoanalyst and professor, like all this stuff, you know, teacher. And I, and I would consciously walk around New York City saying, how come people don't do psychoanalysis in group? And then one day, like Liz, when she got back from Germany, uh, I was presenting a paper 
at a conference called the Future of Psychoanalytic Education. And quite randomly and in quite an oblique way, I was online for coffee and stood next to this lovely man named Elliot Zeisel. And we started talking and he's a cyclist and I'm a cyclist. He works in Texas, I work in Texas. And then he starts saying that he does psychoanalysis in group. And I was like, what? Like, where have you been my whole life? Like, mm -hmm. that is just like, are you serious? And it, then his, I learned that his office was a block and a half away from mine. And so I was like, well, this is like, you know, Bashert or Kismet mm -hmm. or like, I was like, okay, this is like the Barcelona moment where it's like, this is the yeah. next step. So, so there's, then, a, there, there's a important thing I think we need to have for the audience here. What is, what is the difference how is group psychology different than classical analysis, Liz? Well, well, I want to say one thing, Chap, because I think you can speak with much more detail around this. Sure. But for people who might have a body lens, it's not unusual when we hear psychoanalysis, we run. <laughs> well, I don't think you're. I don't think you guys are alone in that. <laughs> well, because we're more tuned. But it gets you up off the couch and running. That's good activity. Yes, that's right. <laughs> in action. Uh, but I, I do believe that at least in the structural integration community, we're looking at different types of body-centered therapies. So group therapy, specifically, where Chap and I met, that specific style or model really encourages the use of the, the, the group therapist slightly differently. Because in classical analysis, in my experience, there's less talking by the analyst. In group work, the analyst is doing something to get the group members to connect with each other. Where these parts, or I like to think of them as the bones are going to be suspended in the fascia and the group leader is going to, through certain techniques, use things like mirroring or finding a way to use a phrase to get two people or the therapist with the member to feel connected or uh, bridging. Or so so the, the, the person in charge of the group would be serving the role of, uh, how do I say this here? Um, they would be changing the dynamics of the connective tissue within the group in terms of how the different bones, or in this case, people of the group relate to each other, which then strengthens their connections and their structure and helps them find resilience as a group and as an individual bone. Well, where relationship being the key word. So if I'm working one-on-one -on -one with the client, I want to use my hands, my words, my own body in a way that helps parts relate. And in group therapy, and Chap, maybe you could take, uh, take this and extend it, that that's what the group therapist is also working with, using words, their own body to listen, um, what else? How would you add to that? John? Well, I would just say to go back to the beginning, what happens when you're in a group is all of a sudden you get access to the oblique. That, that in so much of the dyad back and forth, whether it's doctor, patient, analyst, analyzand, say what comes to mind was on the couch or face to face, there's a kind of a dyadic 
mother infant back and forth to people which at least quite consciously by design even though there is this third party called the unconscious that's you know at large for each of you there's a quite quite clear dyadic back and forth which is direct say what comes to mind i'm going to hear what comes to mind are you open to an idea i may share an interpretation i may share a feeling but it's quite direct once you get in that group you've got all these oblique angles and and avenues of influence you may have two people who are profoundly impacted by each other but never speak because they've resonated with each other's story and maybe eventually they will speak but then but they're kind of bonded through the story in a way without even talking about it so is that something you can actually observe in the group if you're watching it uh liz could observe it with her eyes she would see it i so might how, how would it. that manifest liz well one of the reasons why we really enjoy uh doing this together is that chap has the uh he has the keen sense practice training to hear and my keen sense and practice is in observation visual observation and we both are learning more about how we also feel that in our own body so one of the ways is that we become together uh, highly sensitized to words to movement for example and i know we're on a recording but david i just saw you lean in mm -hmm. And then I saw you move your arm a certain way that made me think, oh, you might be getting very interested. At least that's my idea. Right. But rather than just make my own assessment, I might say, so David, what, what's happening? I noticed you just leaned in because, yeah. because action or body language will have a meaning, or I could say nonverbal communication is happening all the time and it, and it includes nonverbal all aspects of communication except the words so that's what i'm tracking yeah and i think that's um so i was noticing that the document i have up with had my show notes on it got hidden and i'm like where did that document go because there's something i wanted to ask chap about later in the show so i leaned in because i was trying to be like really cool like okay i only do this in a way that's not obvious and they won't notice but i'm talking to two pros right now they're going to notice everything so i should have known that um but let's um let's pay no attention to the man behind the curtain but david um, that's a great example of me having to be very careful not to interpret what I think you just did and to possibly say, hey, chap, you haven't any thoughts about what just happened to you, chap, when David leaned in. So then I take the attention off of you, David, mm -hmm. and I see what's going on somewhere else in this group because the group makes up a body itself. So, well, I have two, as usual, I have two places I want to take that comment. Um, this is not new for listeners of the pod. That's just who I am. Um, I, you'd also in the, in the dyadic uh, way, when you notice something that you observe in therapy, 
it's a good reinforcement to not make an assumption about what that meant, but to ask a question about what happened and see what response you get, uh, as opposed to you know laying your well, own. I would, I would like to speak to that for just a moment. Sure. Uh, the because this highlights a, a central uh, ingredient of our mission, which is education. The in all of medical school, I got one formal lecture on body language in the family practice elective. And in all of psychoanalytic training and all of psychiatric training, I got, there was basically one lecture that was a volunteer, it was a, a that I sought out on my own where So basically one, two to three hours of training in body language. Yeah, you know, it was all kinds of stuff about mental status exam and like appearance, you know, camped or unkempt or mm -hmm. disheveled or that kind of stuff, but in terms of like just the subtlety and gesture, like, you know, make sure that you put your chair next to the door so you can get out in case you may be assaulted. Like, you mm -hmm. know, very important body language. Like, you know, if someone's about to hit you, like, okay. But like, in terms of like the subtlety of what we're talking about, like, you know, I see that you just moved to your head to the right. When I said that, were you having a reaction? Like, there's an ocean of exploration to happen in the room that like just doesn't fit into any of the education that I went through at least because, well, you tell me it's a blind spot. It's because people don't know it, don't know how to integrate it, don't know how to talk about it, don't know how to welcome it, a thousand things. But, you know, we come back to this idea that, um, like I think you said in your book, David, that a teacher told you as a kid that 10 per, you only use 10% of your brain and you mm -hmm. were committed to using more than that. Well, you know, I, at least the way I was trained, and I believe this is true, that in the most conservative neuroscientific circles, people will say in the most liberal approach, we use 15% of the brain for consciousness. And that's liberal. Maybe it's only okay. seven and a half. And so there is this other giant percentage you know vast majority of the brain that's not consciously available so where is it all going well a lot of it is going into body language so if 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 you know and then the other uh um uh, you know the 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 parallel is that um uh if only 15% of the brain is available to consciousness, it's often said also that, that only 15% of communication is verbal. So then there's this whole other 85%. And so mm -hmm. it occurred to me that those two things must be linked. Yeah, sure. You know, that if only 85, per, if 85% is unconscious and 85% is nonverbal, well, common things occur commonly. Those two are probably related, whether it's correlational or causal, I don't know. But in terms of what are we communicating through our voice, through our gesture, through our postures, through movement, or through in the group, the sort of group as a whole, collective movement within the group, that is an amazing untapped reservoir of communication. Liz? So one of the ways we work with it, because it might be fun for the listener just to hear what we're up to. Sure. That's... Is we have now 
gotten to the point where when we get a, a large group together, large group meaning anywhere from online 25 people in person, uh, 40, about 40, I would think is where we've been. Yeah, that's, wow. that's where we cap 40. That's where we cap is we want to give the participants a, a highly experiential um, journey into this body experience. And so we have thought about creating these rings or these where we place the seats a certain way if we're in person. Hmm. And we have a people sitting in the inside group, eight, eight people. We have a middle group outside of that and a larger group outside of that. Okay, so here's where we get to the idea of layers and fascial layers and yes. layers of the group. Okay, keep going. And yeah. and chap, definitely jump in here because we we actually have uh, realized that when you have a large group and you want to have a fishbowl, we don't use that model because everybody's having an experience in the group. The internal group, the inside group, is are the ones that are going to be speaking. The middle layer, those folks are going to be sitting without words and containing as much movement as possible. And the outer layer, they get to move, uh, but not jump out of their seat, but within the confines of around their chair. And then on the inside, we work to create a connection through words and through uh, a ball of yarn. And I don't know, Chap, if you would like to pick it up from there. Well, I, 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 I believe the ball of yarn story belongs with you since that was your brilliance. Um, but one thing, uh, one thing real quick here, do you assign or do you just wait and see which where people naturally want to fall into place with the chairs? Well, one that of the one. things we've, we've learned is to ask for eight people to come into the center mm -hmm. and they get to self-select um, okay. who wants to be in. And who okay. would like to be in that middle and who would like to be on the outside and they know coming in what the guidelines are. Okay, so we know about your amazing weaving skills with your hands with your clients instructional integration list, but how did you translate that into talking to the people in the circle in your well, on the inside circle. Because my background is more in observation and touch and chaps is with words we wanted to. Can I slow you down for just a second? Yeah. Because I think what for the listeners that may be confusing that that we only get to the three, the inner, middle and outer layers of the demonstration group experiential section after starting as a large oval. That we spend a lot of time at the uh, beginning okay. of the group welcoming people having them, everyone sit around, introduce themselves briefly. We introduce ourselves. There's some didactic material. There's a way that we're warming up the entire outer layer. So by the time we break into the inner, middle, and outer uh, layers and of this experiential the, section, okay. that's really already the middle phase. Mm -hmm. And now Liz is describing what happens on the inner circle of the middle phase of the experience. Okay, Liz. So we've taken these steps to work our way to that point. And in that middle layer or that middle circle, so, excuse me, the inside circle, mm -hmm. which I might uh, 
say might go with the the organs, for example. Okay. But in, in words, we take a ball of yarn and we take words and we make some agreements inside that circle for, to create some safety inside that inner ring, as well as people hearing it on these other two rings where they're seated. And then this yarn, whoever is speaking holds the yarn. And then whomever would like to respond, the yarn will be passed to them. And eventually everybody holds the yarn once they've spoken. They pass it to whomever wants to go next. And before we know it, we have a web, a physical, literal mm -hmm. web of connection with the yarn. And the yarn I have is a little give, you know, so if we pull on it or slack it, uh, people inside actually have a physical reality of working with tension. Wow. Okay. Totally get the metaphor. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. And then at a certain right. point, we drop the yarn. We, we, we say, and it's all based on we're timing everything. Mm -hmm. We put the yarn on the floor. And now that they're not tactile, then something else happens and they begin to have uh, feelings and thoughts and sensations coming up that they get to name in the inner circle. Now, theoretically, uh, they're the ones talking, but because it's a body, the whole thing represents a body. Mm -hmm. We never really know what's gonna happen when a client or a group gets together. And so we have a couple of sure. uh, agreements that we've made to create safety, but then we work with what's happening. So what's going on then in the middle circle and the outer circle? Well, but before you get there, can I share another observation? Please. Because at least for the structural integration people listening, I don't know that there's a more concrete example of the tensegrity model happening than in that moment when the inner group is talking and they have to pass the yarn because there's actually, there is a literal tug and tracing back and forth and attention that's holding the group together. Then after the warm-up, they everyone drops the yarn onto the floor and you can still see the tracings. At that moment, it's as if the tensegrity model is internalized to the space without having to have the actual structural link Wow. one person to the other or ability to pull but already the tracks have gotten you know if it, it's not the anatomy train but already the emotional train tracks mm -hmm. are laid between yeah. the inner group so that people can start to cohere and take this shape and then it it moves to the middle and the outer and and we can go from there and, and one of the things that's fascinating is that somebody might be taking yarn and wrapping it around their hands. Somebody may not want to touch the yarn and it's laying on their leg. Uh, somebody else might uh, want to talk a lot and they have collected a lot of yarn. <laughs> <laughs> and in the metaphor of, of the body with, with painting, for example, we don't want something to take up everything and not feel identified with the rest of the body or the rest of the group. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think that's the, also another interesting aspect of the yarn is that we can see 
not just through words, but through visual, noticeable visual data, how they yarn and how people talking and how they uh, might feel shows up in that yarn model. Okay. So what happens next? The yarn is dropped. We've created connections on the inner layer. Uh, we've still got the, the middle, the meso, and the outer, the ecto, if you will, or the superficial mm -hmm. fascia. Uh, what, what happens next in the room? Well, we, we'll, we'll divide the time up so that, you know, it'll be something like, let's say we have 60 minutes in a demonstration group or in this experiential section. The first 20 minutes will be the inner circle working with the yarn. And then there'll be another 10 minutes of the inner circle talking without the yarn. And then there'll be half an hour for anyone in the group to talk. And so then you start watching the movements of like, what are people in the middle layer feeling? There's always a lot of envy. People who are in the middle and the outer layer are always envious of the people who chose to go inside. Mm -hmm. They can't stand that they. Many people can't stand that mm -hmm. there's this wish for attention that people have actually acted upon and then gotten. Right. And then, and then uh, it's really quite elegant and amazing to kind of watch how it ripples out because in general, I think one of the things that we've learned is that people in the middle layer don't speak as much because they're holding so much tension between the inner layer and mm. the outer layer. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of feelings and don't necessarily talk about them as much. The people on the outer layer are very vocal, if not with like swaying, like, you know, like three people or four people at a time might start swaying in the outer layer, but they can also say things like they can be really angry and upset and almost shaming of people who are on the inner circle. It's, and it's as if in that moment, the three layers of the group model some of the workings of the mind, that there's a core excitement or feeling that happens in the nucleus and the outside membrane has to attack it or loves it and welcomes it. But there's this whole negotiation between the inner circle and the outer circle that happens with the middle layer in between. And it's a, it, it's a model for, Lord knows what. I mean, I, I was just actually systems. thinking about uh, business models. I was thinking about uh, the line workers, the middle management, and then like the people at the top making all the decisions that everybody pays attention to, and the kinds of relationships and tensions and things that happen in the corporate environment. Well, what's interesting sure. to me is how what's going on in that center circle is very much being felt out on the surface and expressed through the body. And, and I find that fascinating. And with all of that said about what we're doing when we're doing it, the big ahas come when we have a, we, we take a break, which we tend to request when we're in person, that it is a relatively quiet break a time for letting something, seeing what comes up in a five, 10 minute uh, bio break, for example. Um, 
and we come back and then we hear from everybody what they experienced. And that's really where we learn the most about what's happening because we don't predict something to happen, but it's fascinating to hear how something repeatedly happens. How the, that middle layer people tend to feel tense and, and not mm. really, and, and a physicality, they wanna lean in, they wanna pull back, their body is involuntarily in their mind experiencing something. They might wanna turn. The outer layer, uh, I've heard people say, I really just wanted your eyes, Liz. I wanted you to look at me. I needed that connection. I felt so far away and yet so much was happening. And they are the ones that actually then help us learn what's happening in the, in the experiential process. So how, how have working in this context, how has that changed the way you teach when you teach groups now? in different contexts. How did it change your teaching? Well, I think one of the most concrete examples for me that I've just ingrained from my work with Liz is the, the just amount of attention and precision to pay to the exact nature of the frame of teaching, that there really is a beginning, a middle, and an end or a, a takeoff, a flight, and a landing, I pay a lot of attention at the beginning to warming up the group. It's much more important than any content I can teach because if the group does not warm up and feel safe and coherent and integrated and that I'm available and responsive and wanna know their names and where are they from and how does this mm -hmm. material fit into what they're learning and integrate, it's over. Yeah. And it just, it reminds me of a teaching experience I had recently where all these residents were on the Zoom call and none of them, maybe one of them had the, his screen available to see. And, and, and I, I, I said, well, look, I'm all for resistance. Like, I don't, I, I don't want to get you to change anything. Like, stay, stay masked. That's fine. Mm -hmm. It just helped me to understand, like, if you had to guess, what's the message to me as the teacher if you're keeping yourselves masked? And what they pretty clearly told me was that, that they're just accustomed to being lectured at uh -huh. or lectured to. And if you're getting a lecture, then this is the material. You come in, not much of a warm-up. Let's all go through the slides. If power corrupts then powerpoint corrupts absolutely and <laughs> there you are and so i'm stealing that kind of I'm like so stealing download <laughs> and and uh and then as soon as they knew that i was there and that i was interested and that i was interested in a conversation and we could all talk together one by one they all almost all of them unmasked themselves that's fantastic. we were able to have a like an actual class like in the room, I mean, not exactly, but that sort of sense of like paying attention to the whole arc of the class and yeah. the, the, the social it, emotional basha in yeah, the as, in as, the as somebody who had to move a lot of teaching things to uh, the online platform in 2020, like so many of us, it was initially 
difficult because I couldn't scan the room. I couldn't see the, oh, this person looks like they didn't get it. Let me, let me do an interaction here because there's probably three other people who are right with this person that I didn't notice. Or just that whole aspect of, like I said, it's not just a person pontificating and everybody listening. At least that's not how right. I like to approach it too. Well, and I would add not only warming up, but having a obvious closure to the process so that the mm -hmm. closure is as valuable as the warm-up. But as a teacher, I also have found that using this model has allowed me to sit back and, dare I say, work less but get the students to show up more mm -hmm. and get them to talk yeah. more with each other and to rely on the fact that they can actually help each other and that my job would be to work with still helping parts relate, but to let them know that you know ultimately I don't have the answer. The answer is gonna happen when they're together. And so it's helped create much more space, mm. more ease in the teaching. And, and um, I think the other piece around doing this is that, and this is a whole other conversation. I think there's gonna be a part two. Is too overwhelming. The group actually might have, have each other. And then I also would go and talk about what happened to me in my own supervision. So that it becomes like fascia a network or a, uh, you know, I'm never alone. So whether mm -hmm. I'm the teacher in the group or whether I've just had a group and I need to debrief myself, there is a, a, a connective uh, tissue that is, is, is together in a way that I don't ever feel alone, isolated, or just horrible if something is too much. I also don't feel like I'm the greatest thing because the group has made something happen. And, and that's the art of teaching. Me. That's what you want. Well, I believe that teaching is not, again, like Chap said, it's not, or you said, David, it's not about the teacher standing up there and being the expert. Mm -hmm. it's, it's that the expert is in, in what everybody is bringing in. And there is a topic and I might have an expertise in the topic, Mm -hmm. But in order for the students to learn something, they have to be participating in this as well. Right. And I have really enjoyed creating a new group dynamic and some connective tissue between the three of us today. And uh, look forward. I think we just, we just kind of got the lid up and there's so much more in this box that we haven't even touched yet, but looking at the time, it is time for closure. So Liz, Chap, thank you so much for being on the program today. Glad you could have us. Thanks for having us, David. Yeah. All right, next time. You bet. Thank you for listening to another episode of Body Talk. Any questions, questions for me, questions for our guest, send me an email bodytalkdavid at gmail.com or you can use the Anchor app and send me a voice memo. How cool is that? I'm David Lasondak. Join me next week when we continue to explore your inner universe on Body Talk. <laughs>